Thanks again for joining everybody. Much appreciated. Uh, if you were here last week, of course, we did kind of a first come first serve approach to the conversation or the discussion portion, question asking portion at the end. Uh, rather than do that each and every time, because that just creates a race for everybody just to type as fast as they can, which I don't like to do because that distracts from the from the lesson as well. What we're going to do is about 20 after the hour, I will make an announcement that the chat is now open to people who want to ask a question. So you're welcome to use the chat to communicate with each other. Um, but if you have a, a, a question, at the time I make the announcement, just write question in the chat. Not your, not what question you have, just the word question, that's it. And uh, you'll have a 10 minute window until the bottom of the hour to do that. I will then randomize the order of the people who wish to speak, and then I will just pull people in uh, as we have time. So as, as usual, uh, not everybody who is trying to speak in all likelihood will be able to speak, but going forward, this will be, um, I think a, a, a more fair way of selecting who does get to speak and uh, hopefully give everybody a chance to get in the mix as the weeks go on. So uh, I will make that announcement again about 20 minutes from now, but, uh, but that is the only thing that I have to say. And so without further ado, Robert is back with uh, the second week's lesson. Okay. Hello, everybody. Um, today we are going to cover verses one through five, which is what I intended to do last time. Now, we will start covering more and more verses as we go along, meaning that in the next session, I think it's going to be, instead of five verses, it's like 20 or 30 verses. I already posted that on the website, on the blog. Just one quick clarification on the blog. I do post it throughout the week in little chunks. I'm not trying to make any stealth edits. You know, I'm not trying to pull a CNN over here, uh, but I I don't have enough time to write the whole blog post in one day. Um, so just in case, I do make edits throughout the week to that. Okay, so let's get to the material because there's quite a bit to talk about. I'm going to first read the first five verses. I'm going to use the NET translation, but uh, again, feel free to follow along in whatever translation you prefer. So it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was fully God. The word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Okay, so we will take it verse by verse. The reason why I limited this session to just those five verses is because there's really a lot of stuff here that is kind of foundational or central, perhaps I should say, to Christianity. So it gives us a chance to lay a good foundation. Um, in the future, the verses actually have more of a plot, so to speak. There are more events going on that don't really require nearly as much discussion. Okay, so the first two verses, and I posted this on the blog, by the way, um, which I don't know if anybody's reading it, but um, if 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 nothing else, it's kind of a set of notes. It helps me <laughs> to go through this. But the first two verses have a very specific structure. It's called a chiasm. And this is a sort of poetic, perhaps a song type of structure where you, you say something forward and then backwards, if that makes sense. I gave, I gave an example in the blog 
with just a very short phrase. So let's say that I was writing a awful poem and I said, she's the most beautiful woman. My eyes cannot stop staring. And then it followed, my sight won't leave her. She's such a gorgeous girl. You can split that into four sections and notice the reverse order in which it goes. First, she's the most beautiful woman. That's the first phrase. And the very last phrase is, she's such a gorgeous girl, saying the same thing. And then the two middle phrases are the same. Okay. We see this in, verse, in verses one and two. And I, I break it down in the blog in case you want to look at it visually. Why do I even spend any time talking about this? Uh, first of all, um, I just want to kind of briefly mention that uh, sometimes scholars think that John may have used a poem or song or psalm or something like that that was already existing at the time, and that then maybe he modified it slightly. We, if if that is the case, which it's no big deal if it is or it isn't, we have never found that original material. Okay, so really, what the, the reason I highlight this is because it's important for us to always pay attention to not only what is written, but how it's written, particularly the style and the, the genre. It, it certainly seems like these first two verses are incredibly deliberate. Uh, for them to follow such a specific structure, every word must be well thought out. Um, and I think we see this. I think this is incredibly masterful. Um, I, In fact, I would. I, I think my opinion is that John probably expected his readers to memorize the first two verses uh, because of the way that they're written. They're meant to be easily memorizable. Okay, so enough on the structure and let's talk about the content of them. Um, it begins with, in the beginning was the word. Okay, in the beginning. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, then when people say in the beginning, you're already thinking of a verse and it's not actually out of John, right? It would be out of Genesis. The very first book of the Bible, now we're talking Old Testament, not New Testament, starts with those exact same words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So here we have essentially the same content, particularly if you pull in verse three, you have in the beginning was the word, Think of Genesis in the beginning, God, right? And then in verse three, you have all things were created by him. And in Genesis, you have created the heavens and the earth. So clearly here, we have kind of a throwback to uh, the, the creation narrative of Genesis. What's truly relevant out of this is that in the beginning, the word is already there. It is not created. And as we discussed these verses a little more, and we talk about the word word or logos in Greek, um, we will see how sometimes wisdom and Torah were treated similarly, but oftentimes they were the first creation. In this case, John is very clear that the word is already there. Well, this brings to light two uh, attributes of God. I was going to say central attributes, but I suppose all of them are. So that would be incorrect for me to say. And I want to engage in a little bit of natural theology. I posted some videos on the blog that I don't know if anybody watched or not, um, which again, it, it's fine. I'm going to talk about them here. There are, or let me backtrack just a, just a second, I suppose. Natural theology is when we try to learn about God, but without the Bible. 
we just try to kind of look at the world around us and decide what can I know about God just from kind of my own experience. And there are two um, arguments for God that point to the same thing. They point to God being uncreated and being the foundation for all that is created. Um, a, a quick disclaimer here, the videos that I posted on the blog, they are short versions of these arguments. These arguments have been have been argued for centuries. And I mean that literally, uh, I don't expect that a five minute video is just going to kind of convince everybody who was on the fence about it. But I, I did think they were good introductions. And that's all that they were meant to be. Well, the first one is this, is this argument from contingency. And uh, I will just introduce the idea here. Uh, mostly, I, I guess another disclaimer, I'm not trying to convince anybody at this point of, of that God is real or anything like that. I'm trying to engage in natural theology. Essentially, what can I learn about God if I, if I grant these arguments at least? Okay. So the idea of contingency is, it seems like the things in the universe could fail to exist. That would mean that they're contingent. Okay. Quick example, it, it seems at least that I could fail to exist, right? I, not only could I be killed tomorrow, but it seems like there's no reason why I must exist. exist. I could have not existed. Um, and that, that doesn't just happen with me. That happens with this desk, with my computer, with pretty much everything that I see. And not pretty much, li literally everything. And if I could fail to exist, right, if I'm contingent, if I'm not necessary, it seems like there should be an explanation for why it is that I exist. So the contingency argument essentially says things, uh, everything that exists has an explanation. And that explanation is either found in something else or is found in itself, like the thing itself cannot fail to exist. Um, and nothing in the universe seems to fit that second category, seems to be necessary. So this, this kind of gives us a dilemma where we say, what is the explanation for the universe as a whole? Now, if, if you're skeptical, which is, again, absolutely fine, you may already be thinking about, well, why couldn't you have an infinite regress? Or isn't this some kind of fallacy of composition? Meaning that... It, just because everything in the universe must have an explanation, it doesn't mean that the universe itself must have an explanation. Um, but again, as you get into the argument, I think there's good responses for those. And they, they lead you to this idea that there must be something that just is. It just is. It cannot, sorry, let me phrase that again. It cannot not be. Okay. Um, just a kind of as a mental exercise, try to get rid of everything in your mind. Like I bet you can imagine there being no universe. There's literally nothing. There's no time. There's no space. But it seems like even in that scenario, one plus one equals two. It seems to me you can't get rid of that. Right. Or for that matter, uh, abusing children is wrong. Right. Even if you get rid of the universe, it seems like those two statements are true. So there seems to be something you just cannot get rid of. Well, um, if 
if the contingency argument goes through, right, if, if you believe that it is in fact correct, it leads you to this idea that there is something that just is, and it cannot fail. Well, that's pretty much what the Bible is pointing us to in these first, uh, in, in the first two verses of John. Um, another um, way we can go about this is what's, what's called a cosmological argument that is very basic. Um, and again, I'm not trying to convince you today. That's all right. Uh, but premise one is anything that begins to exist as a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Um, and you can bring in scientific evidence and you can bring uh, philosophical evidence in to show that the universe began to exist. It seems like an infinite regress of events. It's not actually possible. Uh, it seems like modern science points to a beginning of the universe, you know, what we call the Big Bang. Um, and then, again, if you believe that the argument is correct, then it leads to certain conclusions, right? If if there, if there was a first cause, that first cause must be uncaused. Not only that, but it must be immaterial because it is the thing that caused all matter. It must be timeless because it's the thing that caused time. And it seems like it must be a mind. And that normally people uh, are highly skeptical of that last step. And the reason why this would point to a mind or something that is personal is that if it was impersonal, then the moment you hit sufficient conditions, it would do the thing. So quick example, right? I can, I can raise my hand, right? I can't raise the, all the sufficient, the, there are, um, or let me rephrase, the sufficient conditions for me to raise my hand are met. But because I have a mind, I can do it or not do it. And I can choose when I do it. Well, Think of something that does not have a mind. Let's say that you have a, a glass of water outside and it's raining and it's filling up. Well, the, mini, the minute that the sufficient conditions are met for the glass to overflow, it overflows. It cannot decide not to. Well, then in that case, if the first cause was not personal, then it would have created the universe infinitely in the past because they can the sufficient conditions would have been met infinitely in the past okay um so natural theology again if you grant that these arguments are good ones they point us to the same idea of a being that is the first cause of everything and that is in itself necessary and uncreated well we have names for that when it comes to theology uh, one of those things would be aseity. Aseity means that God exists on his own. Um, that there's essentially that, like I said, there's no explanation for him. He is his own explanation. He is necessary. Um, and this kind of sets the foundation, right, for, for Christianity, that there is this, this, this distinction between God uh, and then everything that is created. And that chasm is kind of infinite, that we are not like God. There's actually nothing that is like God. God is that uncaused cause. Um, the last thing that I will say about this is this actually connects to the Old Testament. When you look at Exodus chapter 3, Moses, well, God sends Moses to talk to his people. 
And Moses says to God, you know, if I go, um, they're going to ask me who's sending me, you know, what do I tell them? What is your name? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that gets us to verse 14, where God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, you must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay. So God's name in the Old Testament is I am. And I, I here, I, I've, I've tried to be kind of as, um, as unbiased as I can be, at least the first session and this session, but, but I find this actually quite beautiful. I, I can't help but be amazed that natural theology essentially points us to something that matches what the Old Testament and the New Testament is saying. Um, but at any rate, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Maybe people will have questions or comments on it. Well, that leads us to verse three. Oh, well, I guess I kind of already discussed verse three, but all things were created by him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created, right? Like I said, that God is separate from all of creation. Now, let me take a, a small detour here and talk about the word logos. So the, when, when the Bible says in the beginning was the word, the Greek word for word is logos. Um, the, you know, if you've ever wondered why so many Christian things have that word logos, well, it's because of, because of this connection. And it, it, this is kind of the, uh, the other name we have for Jesus. Like before Jesus is incarn incarnate, he's called the Logos. So it's such a relevant word. And people talk about this word all the time at length. And I now think it's a good question to, to try to understand why John is using this word. It certainly had not been used before in relation to Jesus in the Bible. Um, and I, I think that sometimes the best way to go about this is to consider the options. What other words could John have used? Well, a couple of options come to mind. One would be Sophia, which means wisdom. And the other one would be nomos, which means law. But it was also the word, the Greek word that was used by Hellenistic Jews to translate Torah. Okay. And Torah, it, it let me put it this way. It formally refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, but more informally, it could actually encompass more than just the first five books, perhaps even the rabbinic writings. Okay. But that's a controversy for another day. Well, then um, let's, let's kind of go through the options. And I think that this is going to give us some understanding of the word logos. Um before you get into that, can I make uh, yeah, the chat announcement? Thanks, Robert. Um, if you guys missed at the start, uh, we're going to handle the chat a little bit different tonight. So if you're interested in a question or a comment, uh, go ahead and just write the word question in the chat. Uh, you have until the bottom of the hour to do that. I will then randomize people who are interested in discussion, and I'll pull you in when Robert is finished up, and uh, we'll hear from you then. So again, if you're interested in a question or a discussion point, just write the word question in the chat and I'll take care of you when Robert is finished up. Okay. Um, okay. So what about Sophia? Again, Sophia means wisdom in Greek. Um, one perhaps minor issue is that Sophia is feminine in Greek 
And of course, Jesus is masculine. Um, and that could cause some awkwardness just grammatically. I doubt that this is a large reason. I, you know, um, people get overly caught up in the genders of words and gender languages. They're accidents. Okay. Like think of Spanish. Spanish is a gender language. And a table is feminine, feminine, sorry. A lamp is feminine, but a desk is masculine. They, we're not saying anything about we're not saying that a table is somehow truly feminine in any way, that a desk is masculine. It's just an accident of grammar. Okay. So I, I just say that because sometimes people will get carried away with uh, the gender in gender languages. And no, I'm not getting into any current political uh, <laughs> discussions there. Um, okay. The other thing is that Sophia wisdom was actually uh, very commonly uh, personified in the Old Testament and then in Jewish writings that were quite popular and widespread at the time that John was writing. And so wisdom was already being treated kind of similarly to how the word is treated in uh, the first few verses of John, which is great in a way because it lets the audience kind of draw from that. They're like, oh yeah, like we, we kind of have all these writings that personify wisdom. And, and now John is kind of saying that wisdom is the logos and logos is, is Jesus. Sure, that is good. But what if all the things said about wisdom don't really apply to Jesus? Then it's going to create some confusion. And I point this out in the blog. For example, in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified. Um. But then you get Proverbs 8.22, where it talks about wisdom being the first creation. Well, John certainly does not want that. In, in John's writings, the word is eternal. It was not created. So calling, it, so calling Christ Sophia may have um, led to some confusion. The other possible word is nomos. Again, nomos is the word that uh, Hellenistic Jews, meaning Greek Jews, would use to refer to the Torah. The Torah was also often personified, uh, almost, shall we say, deified. Um, the Torah was spoken of as being there at the time of creation. Um, it was it was the most highly regarded thing, uh, particularly by the Pharisees. Uh, they would say things like the purpose of life is to study the Torah. It would be better not to be born than to not study the Torah. Um, you know, all other faults might be, you know, forgiven, even apostasy, but uh, not uh, failing study to failing to study the Torah was even worse than apostasy. Um so why not use the word nomos? And th there's, again, a couple of, of issues there. Number one, nomos in Greek does not have the same semantic range as the word Torah because it literally means law. And so by using the word nomos, it could restrict the understanding of Christ to not just the word of God, but something actually much more limited, kind of the law of God. Um, also, uh, Jewish writings that use Sophia, that use wisdom, were more common than Jewish writings that use nomos. Um, and by picking neither word, John was kind of borrowing from both traditions. And, um, and then the word, God's word, is active in the Old Testament. 
right? The Old Testament talks in a bunch of places where God's word would do things, was alive and was powerful. One example would be Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8, where it says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So by using logos, the word, not only is it referring to the Torah, but to the thing the Torah talks about, right? So it really is a brilliant move. Okay. So what is kind of the, the summary of this whole conversation about logos? That when John really picked a brilliant word to show that Christ is, is one with God, is divine as in is Christ and God are one. Whatever God is, Christ is. And Christ is higher than the Torah. Christ is higher than Moses. Christ, Christ is higher than all creation. Um, it highlights all of that by, by picking this word. Um, and then John goes on to set up two, two images, essentially, that are going to persevere throughout his gospel, which is why I wanted to spend at least a tiny bit of time discussing them. Um, John introduces the idea of life and the idea of light versus darkness. Okay? Um, so we see in verse four that John talks about in him was life. Now, this can be a little bit, um, I guess, contentious. Does he mean life as in literally all life came to be through Christ? Which, mind you, John already said that everything that was created was created through Christ. So um, perhaps he is, John is just emphasizing that point, or perhaps John is talking about eternal life when he says life, because John will talk about life many, many times in his gospel, and every other time, John is talking about eternal life. He will add a Greek word that means everlasting, or the context will make it clear that we're not talking about being just alive on this earth, but but of a of an enduring life, essentially what people may colloquially now refer to as going to heaven. Um, although that's not the language that John is going to use, and we can talk about that at some other time. Um, so Christ is the basis for not only life, but everlasting life. And then we get this duality between light and darkness. And here I actually want to point out um, just kind of this, this uh, oddity of Bible scholars. Like I pointed out the first session, uh, Bible scholars are oftentimes quite antagonistic to the, to the Christian faith because there's a fair amount of them who are not Christians. Um, but in this case, I feel like it, it, it reached kind of, uh, I don't know, it reached silly heights, shall I say, um, because many argued that John had pulled this idea of light and darkness from Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this idea that the the physical world is evil, it is corrupt, and the way to ascend into a more divine realm is through some kind of secret knowledge. And I know that I oversimplified that, but it's, it's you know, unless somebody else really wants to talk about Gnosticism, we'll leave it at that. Well, actually, this idea of light and darkness is present in the Old Testament. It was present in Jewish writings at the time. It's quite silly to think that John here was pulling from the Gnostics. 
But finally, scholars were convinced when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they realized that, yes, in fact, there were all these writings that were quite much older to John's writings that talked about light and, and darkness. Um, okay, so this is not some kind of Gnostic throwback. Um, like I said, this idea of these ideas of light and darkness, well, and of life, they will repeat themselves in the gospel. And um, the last kind of Greek issue I want to to point out here is that in verse five, it talks about the darkness did not master the light, or at least that's the word in the NET. If you're reading a different translation, it may have said, it, or it may say, say overcome or understood. Okay? And you may be thinking, how can the same word be translated overcome or understood? And the problem is that that Greek word has quite a large semantic range and it can be translated as either. Um, when you look at the patristic evidence, and again, when I say patristic, we're talking about the early church fathers. You actually see both interpretations of the word. Uh, although if I'm being completely fair, the Greek, the Greek fathers took this word to mean overcome. And mind you, these were people who spoke Greek as a first language. So perhaps we should trust them. Um, either way, it, it actually seems to me that John is using a double entendre here. Again, these first few verses are so deliberate. I think that, that John is saying both. The darkness did not understand the light and the darkness was not able to overcome the light. And perhaps those two concepts are related. It is because the darkness cannot understand the light that it cannot overcome it, uh, perhaps. Um, and so, so I guess it, this brings me to the last part of my blog, which is kind of the conclusion of all of these ideas of Christ being, being uh, one with God, of Christ being the light and Christ being the life and Christ being the creator of all things and Christ being this necessary being, right? You get this incredibly high Christology. Well, as I was thinking about this passage, I decided that I would um, pull up my Catholic catechism book. Now, I'm not Catholic, uh, and I know that some people may be bothered that I would even perhaps use that resource. I, you know, let's face it, we agree on 99% of things with Catholics, so I don't see why we wouldn't. But they had this beautiful um, section in which uh, they talk about Christ being the full and complete and the last revelation, right? In, in Christianity, um, we don't think that there, that there can come something greater than Christ. How, how can there be anything greater than Christ? How can there be any greater revelation of God than God himself? And so um, it kind of pushes you to this point, if, if you believe this to be true, that that there's nothing else to ask for. There's nothing else to expect. Um, and to me, that that is kind of the ultimate conclusion of these five verses. The full revelation of God has come and there is nothing else we can ask for uh, because there's literally nothing else to show, nothing else to reveal. Uh, by the way, that is not to say that there's nothing else we can learn about God, um, but 
there, there will be no greater prophet. There will be no greater miracle. There will be no, you know, no greater event. Um, one, one last note, and today I'm going to try to open it up to questions a little uh, earlier than I did last time. I considered discussing the idea of the Trinity. How can Christ be one with God? Or, sorry, be Christ and God be one, but also be distinct as far as different persons in God. And I think that we are going to have great opportunities to discuss that in the future. Although if somebody asks a question, sure, we can talk about it. Uh, but I, I, I didn't just disregard that by negligence. I just thought there was a lot of other things we should discuss. Uh, and we will have opportunities to talk about the Trinity at a later time. Um, and with that, um, I guess I will open it up to questions. So we'll see how this goes. Sure. Well, uh, thanks, Robert. And um, I don't necessarily have a question as I did last week, but I appreciate the discussion about certain fundamental truths of the world, I suppose. That's what really got me in interested in starting this project is it just seems to me that there are certain unerasable or natural truths that exist. And I want to know where those come from. So that that sort of discussion is uh, is of high interest to me. So thanks for that. Um, we do have, let's see, we have a smaller list of question askers this evening. So we should have no problem getting through the five that we have so far. And if there are others interested, oh, we have one more here. Um, if there are others interested, please uh, do add your, uh, just type question in the chat and I will uh, take care of you. So uh, I'll take care of the first five that we had here. First up is, uh, is Chris. So once we get Chris unmuted here. Testing, testing. Yeah, there we go. What's on your mind, Chris? Um, I guess my question is more of a comment as far as logos goes um, and sort of a recommendation on a further like understanding of the theology behind Christianity itself. Um, during the time of, of the gospel being written down, which is around 30 to 60 years after the, the crucifixion and, and the resurrection and all that. Logos was also used, from my understanding, and I'm sure Robert can attest to this as well, it was used by the Greek philosophers, um, who were called the Gentiles at the time, as this person again, a personification of, of what Robert said, but is also shorthand for divine wisdom, in a way. Um, so that's just sort of a an extra thing to add on to that. And there's a great, I really recommend looking into this. I've, I'm sure I've talked about this on the, uh, on the Colin show, but there's a great uh, series that is crowdfunded. Um, it's the largest crowdfunded TV show that is being produced uh, all about the, all about the gospel. So it's taking all resources from both biblical uh, sources and just regular sources that we have at, um, your uh, knowledge to create this dramatization of what what the the gospel story might have looked at, and so as far as the writings of John, there's this great scene where Christ has been asked to speak at a synagogue, which he did multiple times throughout throughout his preaching, and he's he ends up preaching from the book of Genesis, first book, and begins with in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and all that. It does a transition from that to John actually writing in the beginning was the word 
and it's as Robert was saying, it's a um, he, he's doing it as a mirror to Genesis, but just also regular Jewish knowledge, and he's using the Greek language to bring in the, uh, the group of Gentiles to sort of say this isn't just something that is meant for the Jewish population, which it was something that was considered at the time. You'll see this in um, in uh, Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul's writings, and the other uh, the epistles as well, saying this is not purely meant as a extension of the Jewish faith that is meant for all of mankind, uh, meaning Gentiles, which was just the generic term for non-Jewish speakers. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, I'll I'll kind of respond briefly. Um, by the way, that, that is a totally fair comment. That is a very good comment. So this has been debated for a long, long time. To what extent John was pulling from Greek philosophy and not just kind of from his Jewish background. And through the first half of the 1900s, the scholarly consensus was that John essentially pulled this idea from Philo. Philo is a Jewish writer, a Jewish historian of the time, and Philo was a Hellenistic Jew heavily influenced by uh, Greek philosophy. And uh, like I said, up until the 1950s, that was the consensus that really this logos connected heavily to that. Um, the the opinion of scholars changed after the, the the first half of the 1900s, and they they reached kind of a different consensus that it related more to the personification of of wisdom and of Torah, which is what I discussed today, um, and and that's perhaps why I left the other part out. But it's certainly not incorrect. It certainly is a very plausible explanation that John was also making a connection to the Jewish logos, uh, and. Another brief comment on this is this idea of logos appears in Neoplatonist writings, right? So you have this Platonist idea that there's this perfect world of shapes and ideas. And then the Demiurge, which is sort of like a god, uh, created the material world using these things. And the material world is almost like a corrupted, a cor corrupted copy of it. Um, but the logos then is this like divine order. It, it still fits with the passage very, very well. So if it, you know, it could be, it could be that John was pulling from that Greek background. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Uh, next up is Adam. And while I'm waiting for Adam, I can see you guys in the chat discussing Stephen's question. And Stephen, I just want to clarify if you wanted to ask that question to Robert or if you guys are just having a, ch uh, a chat among yourselves, which is completely fine if you are. And uh, sorry if you can hear baby screaming in the background. It's that time of night. It sounds like bedtime's going poorly. So I apologize for that. Uh, but um, Stephen, if you could just let me know in the chat if you want to be pulled in, I'll get to your question in a moment, if that is your preference. Uh, but Adam, are you there? Yep, yep, I'm here. Go for it. Um, nice to see you, Matt. Um, thanks for doing this. Uh, Robert, good job. I have a small little, I guess, constructive criticism I want to throw out there. Um, for me personally, I, I really don't like the whole muting thing. I know you're trying to stop chaos and all that, but I, I think it's detrimental a little bit here. I, this is my okay, opinion. We we, we can talk about format by email or, or okay, okay. In, that, just for I'll the let, discussion, I'd like to talk about the, the actual uh, content. Okay. But I'm happy to take your email about suggestions later. I'll send you an email. Sure. Thanks. Um, 
pretty much everyone already knows if they believe or not, you're being a pussy if you're not doing it. <laughs> That's my thing. Okay, later on. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, okay, so Stephen's question, um, and thank you, Adam. Uh, Stephen's question, he does want to ask, but he doesn't have a mic. So I will oh, okay. get to Stephen's question after Red Falcor, who is next sure. up. Let's see here. Where is Red Falcor? All right. Oh, whoops. That's the wrong one. Where did he go? Did Red Falcor take have, off? Uh, I oh, think wait, I no, may no. have unmuted myself. If that's, oh, no, that's all right. Maybe what, you however you did it. Right. I know that you cheat. So. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, but that's fine. You're up next. It's my secret technology. Sure. At work again. Uh, Robert, it uh, sounds like you're saying um, when you were discussing the uh, origin event, I was very interested in that. Um, Referencing the Big Bang or Mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of the universe, whatever, Mm -hmm. however you want to characterize that. Sounds like you were saying that because that that event does not infinitely regress into the past mm-hmm. um that that is the reason to assume it was caused by a mind that m- made a decision to basically crack open the laws of physics and let them play in our universe um but are there any arguments for or or even against the idea that those laws of physics even just emerged naturally out of some kind of a chaotic state that predated them and that they formed on their own. Um, What's, what's the argument for why a mind was necessary for the decision to be made at some point for those laws to emerge? Sure. So let's split the, uh, let me just make sure because I may have muddled the waters here. I want to to make absolutely clear that the cosmological argument from the beginning of the universe only reaches the conclusion that there is a cause for the universe. And then it's a different set of inferences that we look at, or it's a different analysis, sorry, that we, that we do to determine what this cause might look like you know, what properties he might have and, and what have you. And so if we just look at the at the first argument before we even wonder whether it's a mind or not, you have those three statements. Um, anything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. And therefore, the universe had a cause. Now, by the universe, we mean everything that exists, like all the material stuff. And so um, if you say that our universe was caused by some other state of conditions, like physical conditions that existed before that. Effectively, you're denying premise number two. You're saying the universe did not begin to exist. Like the universe is eternal. It just kind of changed shapes or configurations or whatever, Um, which certainly is an objection. Uh, You could claim that, that the universe never began to exist, but I think that there is good evidence that it did begin. Um, the one that, that particularly comes to mind, and again, there's scientific and philosophical reasons, but scientifically, it would be the Vilenkin theorem, uh, which I cannot explain at length, forgive me, I, I'm not a cosmologist, but it's been mathematically proven that any universe that uh, expands, like our does, cannot be infinite in the past. Okay? 
And um, that, because they, they were prior models of a universe that would expand and contract and expand and contract. And, and you know, there were all these models and then it was mathematically shown that really those models do not work. Um, and, and the Big Bang seems to point to, again, if the Big Bang is correct, it seems to point to a beginning of everything, meaning a beginning of matter and time. So before that, not only do you not have any stuff, but you don't even have time for this stuff to do something. Um, so I think that the scientific evidence points in that direction. And notice how I'm phrasing this. I, I'm not going to claim here that these arguments uh, are 1000% just conclusive, but I think that we need to operate in the realm of what is the most reasonable explanation or what's the most plausible explanation. And given the current, given current cosmology seems like the most plausible uh, uh, conclusion is that the universe had a beginning. Well, if it has a beginning, that, that beginning cannot have matter, cannot have time, because again, that's what having a beginning means, what it implies or, or it entails, I should say. Um, and for this, for this thing to, to act and to act, quote unquote, when it did, it seems like it would have to have a power to decide, which would imply a mind. Um, if, if you want to explore this argument uh, more, I would go to the resources by William Lane Craig. He has a website called reasonablefaith.org. And uh, he has defended this argument for decades and it's, it's essentially the kind of top scholar on it. In case that helps. Okay, thanks Red Falcor, appreciate it. Uh, Steven's question is written. He won't be able to chime in by voice, but the question is this, if God pre-exists space, time and matter, is it possible that other gods exist within that same existence? And if so, why is there uh, additional hierarchy within that existence? And does that pose issues with the concepts or with the concept of God in our universe? Sorry, it's hard to read. It's like tippy stream, you know, not the best yeah. format. Why does that pose issues to the concept of God in our universe, or only if we believe that God's omniscience or power or presence is limited to our universe. Okay, that's uh, a, I, I think I get it, but uh, if you need me to reread any of it, let me know. Okay, I will uh, try to address as much as I can. Um, well, part of the reason I suppose that we don't that we don't postulate more than one God is because of Occam's razor, right? Normally you would only postulate as many solutions as you need and no more. And so there's no reason to, um, if we're kind of leaving the Bible aside, right? We're just doing natural theology. We wouldn't theorize multiple gods. We would just theorize one cause, right? One thing. Um, now, again, that's, that's certainly not conclusive. It's just kind of methodology. But then there are other issues. If you get into the contingency argument, the when you start thinking about the necessary cause, it seems like whatever the necessary thing is, kind of the foundation of reality, whatever it is, it cannot have any limits. And for that matter, any parts, because any limit demands an explanation, but we are already dealing with the ultimate explanation. And let me give an example. This is gonna get very complicated very quickly, but I'll give one example. Hopefully it will make some sense. Let's say that we say the ultimate explanation of reality um, has only, you know, X amount of power, not all powers, not all powerful. It can only do certain things. It seems like 
they will, we will need an explanation for that. Why can it only do these things and why can it not do these other things? Well, we can't postulate another explanation because we are at the ultimate explanation, right? And you, essentially you can do this for any property of this necessary thing. Uh, and I'm calling a thing not to be disrespectful. It's just, if we're doing natural theology, we may not be convinced that this thing is God yet. Um, and then there's even other reasons, because if you postulate multiple gods, then you're going to, I think, fall prey to the Euthyphro dilemma. The Euthyphro dilemma asked, is, is something good because God decrees it, or is it good because, oh my goodness, um, uh, let me Google the user for the lemma. I'm going to butcher it. Wow, cheating. I can't believe it. I uh, Forgive me. <laughs> I, I don't want to get this wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, my gracious. I, I, I'm not finding it right off the bat. So if somebody puts it in the chat. Okay. Is it good? Uh, here. Is that a thing good because God says it is good? Or does God say it's good because it is good? Hmm. Okay, and this this dilemma, of course, was crafted by Plato, and it was aimed at the Greek gods because you do have multiple gods, and so I do think it's a very effective, uh, essentially, argument, or you can craft an argument from this dilemma to show that morality then had to be above the gods. There had to be some other thing, right? But we're already postulating the ultimate thing, like we are saying. This is the, the last thing. There, there's nothing kind of the explanatory maximum. Um, and so whatever this foundational thing is, it is the foundation of, of morality. And it's, it's difficult, I think, to reconcile that with the idea of them being there multiple of these things, because then these things would have to be identical, at least in the moral aspect. I don't know. Perhaps I've, I've, I've talked too much on this, but uh, let me just say there are all sorts of good reasons why I think the idea of multiple gods starts to seem less and less plausible. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen, I did see that you have a mic, but you know, just to keep uh, keep it moving, and uh, with respect to the other people looking to ask questions, I'm gonna I'm gonna move along. But of course, you're welcome to uh, to come back and ask a question in a future session. So thank you for that. Daniel is up next. Let's see if we can get Daniel in here. Hello. Hello. Uh, Daniel, are you there? Yeah, I think so. All right, you're all set. Go for it. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to maybe uh, offer a thought or two about um, an, an interesting observation, I guess. Um, obviously, within Greek thought and within Christianity, um, the idea of the logos is um, of utmost importance. And it's, it's just interesting to me how in our culture these days, um, the idea of rationality, which is, you know, uh, uh, it stems from this concept, the, the uh, sort of Aristotelian essential concept of logos. Um, it's interesting how uh, these days you have some attacks on that, as it were, um, in our culture. And it, it seems to me 
that uh, this could be framed as something of a theological debate, although people don't think of it this way. Um, that when you see, for example, the Smithsonian coming along and saying uh, that, that logic and rationality is a white concept or what have you, and there are other ways of doing things, I think it's reasonable to say that this, this really comes down to something of a theological conflict. What do you think about that, Robert? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think um, that we live in this artificial distinction between religion and a secular government. What I, what I mean by that is that I don't grant really that there's anything truly secular. Like the reason that we make murder illegal is because we believe murder to be wrong. And then if you go that step further and you go, why is murder wrong? I, I don't see how you escape getting into the realm of religion. Um, and so, but we we have somehow claimed that saying murder is wrong is secular, is not religious. I don't agree with that. Uh, now, I'm I'm not trying to make this, uh, uh, you know, Bible study about politics. So I'll say no more on that. But Matt, perhaps you have an opinion on this. No, that that's exactly that. Those sorts of topics are exactly what bring me to this discussion because it seems to me there's got to be some sort of underlying fundamental moral truth that makes that make sense. And it can't be that we all just got together and for some, I guess, survival purpose would be the argument presented that we just tend to survive better when we agree not to murder each other. So that's the explanation. But I just find that to be unsatisfying because I, I can't allow, say, the decree of the king or the vote of the majority to decide what the moral framework of the universe is. That's just a nonsense world to me. So uh, that's why that's that question that hypothetically you pose is exactly why I have interest in this. And it's the sort of question I'm looking to answer. Yeah. And, and I think when people go with the evolutionary route, which, which is, I'm not getting into evolution, but I have to say when they go, Oh, it's our evolutionary instinct in it, you know, so we need to do this for survival, but that really only pushes the question one step back because then you go, well, why should we aim for survival? And then you still get to the religious question. Like without some kind of basis, you, we can't even say that survival is good, seems to me. Yeah. Uh, all right. Timothy's up next. Let's get Timothy in here. Uh, if I can find him. You know, it's always the alphabetical order that's so confusing. One day I'll master it. Here we go. Uh, Tim, you're Hello. good to go if you're ready. Hey. Um, sorry, just to quickly address something that was just said there before I get to my actual point. Um, the even from an evolutionary point of view, it's it's kind of an interesting thing to look at that we get hungry and we have a way to satisfy that. We you know we can get food, we can do, we get thirsty and we have a way to satisfy that. We also seem to have an inbuilt ability to look for something that's larger than ourselves, which you would expect from an evolutionary point of view indicates there is something larger out there to find. So that's just a thought to put out. Um, but in terms of the other one, and Robert, I'd be interested to hear your point on this. One thing that frustrates me a little bit as someone that's been at church my whole life is people seem to try to view God through a perspective that he exists. I don't, uh, don't know how to say this. He exists in a way that that's um, 
physically um oh how am i saying this he exists in a physical way that's within our world as opposed to potentially existing in some way that's beyond what we can understand or beyond the limitations of the world as it as it is if that makes sense and i just find it frustrating when people kind of go well how come when we went out to space we didn't find god it's like well because you assume he's physically in some sort of existence that we can understand or that falls within the way our world works like even the thing like Stephen was asking about time before we assume that god exists in the uh idea of time as opposed to outside of it and time something he created for us you know i hope that makes sense it's kind of I'm, i'm having trouble articulating how i'm trying to say it but yeah yeah um well i think that we have been heavily influenced by the movies that we watch And now when we think of God, we think of like this old man with the beard and um, and of heaven as being this place of clouds with the little angels, you know, flying around. They're like naked babies or whatever. Um, well, I, and so I think that perhaps people now think of God in a very anthropomorphic way um, when the God of the Bible is this holy other thing and I, and i was using holy with a w but that's what really the bible means right when it says god is holy god that word means set apart so it's like god is set apart it's distinct it's different uh and so yes uh, certainly we should not kind of expect god to interact with the universe the way that we do except for christ right like that that's kind of the mystery of christ like think of god creating the universe like we can imagine things this is not a perfect analogy but perhaps it's helpful um i can imagine a, a whole thing in my head right this whole story this whole world this whole universe i guess if i'm if i'm good enough with my imagination and then here comes christ which is like if i could enter into my own imagination and that that's that right that's what i mean when i say christ is kind of the ultimate no kind of Christ is the ultimate revelation uh is God entering into his own creation although God is wholly different okay we had one more ask from uh Brian so Brian's going to get last word tonight on the uh questions here let's see if we can get Brian in here Brian you're good to go if you're ready hey everyone Brian from Tulsa here thanks for uh thank can you hear me yeah. yes sir loud and clear thank you for taking my question or my comment rather sure. uh just Before, let me preface this with uh, the concept of the logos. It's so uh, it's so huge. It's so pregnant with different meaning and different cultural connotations from the first century. It's impossible to to cover every possible base. So I don't I don't want this to sound as critical as perhaps it might sound. Um, but I I just think it's important to point out for what comes later in John. He's by calling him the word of God, he's definitely tying it back to, maybe you mentioned this, maybe, maybe I, maybe I missed it, but uh, um, anyway, it's worth reiterating. He's, he's tying it back to the fact that God spoke the universe into existence. Like God's powers of speech are his, uh, at the, in the essence of his creative powers. And there's a, the ancient Kabbalists and other, and other mystics kind of, uh, pointed out that Adam participated with God's act of creation when he named the animals. Like he didn't create ex nihilo, um, but he, he, he added another order 
of another dimension of order to creation by by naming the animals and it it kind of speaks to the fact that we're made in god's image and so we kind of share in this power of his and jesus is sort of the, the or the logos rather is kind of the bridge to that um but also the word of the lord is a is a person in the old testament um and it's it's also tying directly to that, like when it says the word of the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Um, and there are uh, there are numerous occurrences of this this phenomenon of the word of the Lord appearing. Um, he's he's it's kind of used interchangeably with the angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh yet is distinct from Yahweh, and he's he's basically tying. Uh, identifying Jesus as that being or that person rather, because the, the Trinity is God is one in being three in persons. But anyway, I just thought it was important to, to note that uh, those are some pretty major points that are going to come up later in John. And I just thought that should be, be noted on, you know, if you, if you have any comments for that, or if you agree or disagree, I'd be happy to hear it. Yeah, no, uh, thank you for your comment. I really have, nothing to add I, I if i didn't kind of highlight those things well enough i'm glad that you did i'm glad that you re-emphasized them uh just for for the purposes of the people listening um when he said ex nihilo it means from nothing so in genesis 1 god created the heavens and the earth from nothing is the idea and that's what ex nihilo means just so we're all on the same page and um when when he says yahweh that is the name of God in the Old Testament. It's actually that when God says, I am, okay, that in Hebrew is this Yahweh idea. Just so, again, I, I, perhaps everybody here already knows that, but if you don't, I, I wanted to clarify that. But that was an excellent comment. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Okay, that will, whoops, hold on. I'm pressing the wrong buttons. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that'll do it on the discussion tonight. Uh, appreciate everybody for participating. Robert, did you have any closing thoughts on the lesson before we're out of here? Um, no, I accept that. Uh, I realized that perhaps I prepared too little material for this time around, just with the five verses. Next time we're going to move much quicker. And I already posted the verses that we're going to talk about on the blog. So mm -hmm. go look at that. I did see some mentions in the chat. People are looking for a way to contact Robert. Uh, there is a form to do that on the Bible study page of the website. So the same page that you use to get the Zoom info and to find Robert's blog. Again, just look for the Bible study page on the homepage of the website, mattchristiansandmedia.com. There is a contact form for Robert at the bottom if you have any questions. Uh, and as I mentioned previously, if you have, if you have thoughts about... Uh, modifications to the format or just general structure type stuff. Maybe it's not content, but uh, organizational topics. You can uh, get get a hold of either Robert or me. Of course, my uh, contact information is on the contact page of the website. Robert has the form. You can get in touch with him there. Uh, but other than that, that will do it on week two. Uh, thanks once again, Robert. Very much appreciate it. And uh, thank every, thanks everybody for joining. Uh, and we hope to see you back next week. All right, guys. See you all next week. Thank you, Matt.